All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, wow, you've already blessed us. You've already been with us. The singing has ministered to us. The uh, children, the testimonies of the children have ministered to us. And Father, today is a day where we continue our study through the Old Testament, a study of your goodness and of your mercy and of your grace, a blazing grace. And Father, we have already been reminded this morning of your grace, of your goodness. Every one of these children brimming with potential, brimming with innocence, or at least relative innocence. Every one of them showing us that you are a good God, that you are a creative God, that you are an active God, that you are a living God. Father, we come here this morning. It's kind of a strange thing to do, to meet in a building, to sing and to listen to talking, but Father, we're here because we want to worship you. The rest of our week doesn't make any sense without this day. Without the Sabbath, the other days don't make any sense for us, Lord. And so we come here to remember that you are creator, that you are redeemer. And Father, we don't worship you because you have some egotistical desire or need to be worshipped. Father, we worship you because it's good for us to recognize who you are and who we are in relationship to you. And so as we turn our attention now to Scripture, as we continue our study through the Old Testament, come and speak to us. And Father, take this ancient word. We're in Genesis. These are really, really old words. Father, the prayer of my heart and has been all week, as you know, that these ancient words would be very relevant today, that these would become modern words. Minister to us, speak to us, teach us, transform us, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let all of God's people say, Amen. How many of you ever have the experience... And maybe it's not an, an actual experience like, oh, I just had that experience. But at some point in your journey, whether reading or thinking about a biblical character or the biblical narrative, how many of you ever sort of feel like the people in the Bible are at some level fundamentally dissimilar to you? Like, those people are just different. They got to walk on water, and they got to see the ocean split, and they got to feed the 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes as Jesus divided. You know, how many of you feel like I do sometimes? You read those stories, and you think, man, these people were amazing. They had such faith. They had such confidence. The Spirit of God, the miracle-working power of God just moved through these people like electrical conduits. Do you ever feel like that? You pick up the Bible and you think, man, I wish I could have lived in those days. That would have been awesome to have seen that. That would have been awesome to have been alive and to be that kind of a person. I feel that way sometimes. Pick up the Bible and I think, man, this just feels really foreign. These people don't feel like me. I, I feel like I'm a different kind of person. And to be honest and candor, that usually takes the form of I feel like a worse person than these guys. Right? Like I look at Paul and I think, man, I'm not an evangelist. And I look at Jesus and I think, man, I'm not a pastor, right? And I, I just read these stories and I, I naturally tend to see not the similarity but the dissimilarity. And yet, when we give Scripture 
the attention that it deserves and the attention that itself that it itself recommends to us, we find that Scripture is taking great pains, going to great lengths. The authors of Scripture, and God is the inspirer of Scripture, was clearly taking great pains to show the fundamental similarity between us and these other people. I want to start by talking about that. We've reached sort of a critical juncture in our study of the Old Testament. You're going to see exactly where we are in terms of the organization of it, but the short version is is that we're basically halfway through the book of Genesis. James took us last week right up through the marriage of Isaac and that lovely sermon about marriage. Gets us right to the end of Genesis 24, right? That beautiful passage there that James brought to our attention that Isaac loved Rebekah. And then we come to Genesis 25. And in Genesis 25, it's, it's almost like we are at the fulcrum of Genesis. It's not only numerically about halfway, because there's 50 chapters, and we're now at chapter 25, but architecturally, organizationally, we are basically at the halfway point. And the reason is, is that in the opening verses of Genesis 25, Abraham dies. Now we think about Abraham, this man of great faith and Abraham, the one who had the confidence, as Nathan preached two weeks ago, Nathan Renner, to take his son to the top of Mount Moriah and to have been able to have say, to have been able to have said, the lad and I will go and worship and we will return. You know, this guy, Abraham. And yet, here again, when we read scripture, there can be very little question that Moses has painted a very accurate very candid and very human picture of the main protagonists of the book of Genesis. You got the slides up for me there, John? You ready? I want to start by reading a quotation, a fairly lengthy quotation from one of the first religious books that I ever read. The first religious book I ever read was a book called The Great Controversy, and I so enjoyed that book, I so loved that book, that I read another volume by that author called Patriarchs and Prophets. It was the second Christian book I ever read. I want to talk to you today about faulty families. In fact, today's presentation, next week's presentation, and the following are all going to be about basically the same three characters. We're going to talk about Jacob, we're going to talk about Esau, and we're going to talk about Rebekah. Today's going to be a bit of a summary, as you'll see, but watch this. This is this book, Patriarchs and Prophets, which is basically a telling of the Bible story from the creation right up until the death of David. Now, the death of David in our study is still quite a long ways away. We're going to go through the rest of family. That's our second chapter, through the Exodus. Then we're going to go through the acquisition of the land, and we're going to get to the kings. And David, of course, is the second king of Israel. We're not there yet, right? But this particular book goes from creation to the death of David as as kind of a block of the Old Testament. And, and I want to read you a statement here that the first time I read this quotation, it literally jumped out, I mean, not literally, it, it just figuratively jumped out at me and made me feel really good about where I was and made me feel really good about my basic identification with the people of Scripture. Let me read it to you. Inspiration, that is Scripture, faithfully records the what? What's that next word? Faithfully records, let's all say it together, faithfully records the faults of good men. Those who were distinguished by the favor of God, indeed, their faults are more fully presented than their virtues. 
And this has been the subject of wonder to many and has given the skeptic occasion to scoff at the Bible. But it is one of the strongest evidences of the truth of Scripture. That facts are not conveniently glossed over, nor the sins of its chief characters suppressed. The minds of men are so subject to prejudice that it is not possible for human histories to be absolutely impartial. Had the Bible been written by uninspired persons, it would no doubt have presented the character of its honored men in a more flattering light. But as it is, this book here, as it is, we have a correct record of their experiences. Men whom God favored and to whom he entrusted great responsibilities were sometimes overcome by temptation and committed sin. Even as we, at the present day, strive, waver, and... What is that next word? Are you reading along? What's that next word there? Even as we strive... Yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. And waver... Yeah, yeah, that's me at times. And not occasionally, not every now and then, not episodically, right? Not rarely. What's the word? Say it with me. Say it with enthusiasm. We what? Frequently fall into error. Their lives, here comes that word a second time, their lives with all of their, what's the word? Faults and follies are open before us both for our encouragement and our warning. If these people, if they had been represented as without faults, there it is a third time, we with our sinful nature might despair at our own mistakes and failures. But seeing where others struggled through discouragements like our own, where they fell under temptations as we have done, and yet took heart again, and conquered through, how did they conquer? What is, that, what is that phrase that I've bolded there? How do, these, how do these individuals that we're discovering, that we're talking about in Genesis and all of Scripture, how is it that they conquered? Through the, through the grace of God. That's why part of the reason we've called this series a blazing grace. Right? We often have this very simplistic and very incorrect view of Scripture, this sort of bipartite view of Scripture where there's this really mean and sort of you know, exacting and, and fatherly, but sort of a, a strong fatherly figure in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament's the nice Jesus. He shows up, lots of grace, lots of mercy, lots of forgiveness. Rubbish, right? We're seeing that this grace is all over, not just the New, but the Old Testament. Look at this. They conquered through the grace of God. When this happens, we are encouraged in our striving after righteousness as they, though sometimes beaten back, recovered their ground and were blessed of God, so we too may be overcomers in the strength of... What's the last word there? In the strength of Jesus. Are you feeling the force of this quotation? So beautiful. Basically, the idea is that Scripture does not present to us this nice, airbrush, veneered picture of the people that were God's family. That's our second chapter here. We're in family. I don't know how you feel about your own family, but I'd like to think that Violet and I are doing a reasonably good job. Like, I see the faults in my children. They drive me crazy sometimes. I just this week was remarking to my father that, Dad, you used to say to me, I hope you get a son like yourself. <laughs> and I said, that has more than come true. I've got two sons like myself. And I look at my boys, and I love Landon, and I love Jabel, and I see a lot of 
great things in them. I'm proud of them frequently. Probably you have the same experiences with your children if you have them. And, and yet at the same time, I feel that we are so far removed from these great families of Scripture, these great men and women of Scripture who by faith, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, you know, built an ark and who by faith pressed forward into the land of Canaan, who by faith went into the fiery furnace, etc. And yet what's being presented here in this simple quotation is, wait a minute, go back and read your Bible. So that's what I did this week. This week I spent time reviewing how we got to here. We're basically at Genesis chapter 25, and I thought, you know what, it might be a good idea in this particular sermon to just sort of take stock of where we are, just to sort of pause. We've been in this series now for uh, over two months, almost three months now. We've been in this series, we've wrapped up our series on Acts, and just to sort of take a breather, stop, you know, like we're hiking up a steep hill, and look around and just sort of take the view, and what, what, are we, what have we covered so far? Where are we at? And uh, when we do that, we find some fascinating things, and I think that you will be deeply encouraged and blessed by the presentation, and I think that if I do it right, you will see the basic similarity between you and the people that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, okay? First of all, let's remind ourselves of the basic structure of Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 25. That's where we're at. Go to Genesis 25. Let's remind ourselves that Moses has written the book of Genesis not as an exhaustive or an encyclopedic history of the early earth, right? That's not what Moses is doing. This is no encyclopedia. This is no almanac of itemized history of all the people and all the groups and all the cities. That's not what's happening. What's happening is Moses is telling a very specific kind of history. It's a history with intentionality. It's a history with direction. It's a history with purpose. If you were a little cynical, you might say it's a history with an agenda. Moses clearly has an agenda. And his agenda is basically to race through what he considers to be the early part that sets up the most important part. And the most important part, as we have already noted, is the call of Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham and his family. That becomes central to the whole biblical text. And we've spent, we've spent time on that. In those early chapters, Genesis 1 to 11, covering some 2,000 years of human history... Right? We basically only have four events, and those events are the creation, and the fall, and the flood, and the Tower of Babel. That's it. Right? 2,000 years of history, four events. It's as if, and I've said this before, Moses is just, he's just racing to get to the point. But as soon as he gets to Genesis chapter 12, with the call of Abram, later to become Abraham, Moses hits the brakes and slows way down. And he goes into detail, I mean tremendous detail, so much so that the last 39 chapters of this book, chapters 12 to 50, cover not more than about 300 years of human history. So clearly, not an encyclopedic or exhaustive history of early earth. That's not his point. His point is to tell the story of the family of Abraham. And by the way, that's the story the whole Bible is telling. The whole Bible is telling the story of Abraham. When Jesus showed up again and again, he is introduced to us, especially by the very first verses of the New Testament. Matthew writes and he says, the genealogy of, the, of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The whole thing comes back to this covenant, this connection, this communication that God had with this guy named Abraham. Well, here we are in Genesis 25, 
And Abraham dies. Let's read that. Verse 7. This is the sum of the years that Abraham, of, of Abraham's life, which he lived. 175 years. Right? Abraham lives not long after the flood. There are a variety of hypotheses and ideas that have been put forward as to why people lived significantly longer periods of time. In the early chapters of Genesis, we read about Methuselah living, you know, uh, 969 years. Jared, right, our own Jared lived 962 years. I think Adam lived 930 years, right? Long periods, seemingly, you know, incomprehensible periods of time for human beings to live. Abraham didn't live anywhere near that long, but he lived a lot longer than we live today. By modern standards, he lived, you know, a hugely long period of time. He lived 175 years. Now, his wife, Sarah, lived only 127. So Abraham was alive and at least to some degree alone for 48 years. 48 years without Sarah. Now, he did remarry. That's the first verses there of Genesis 25. But here, when we come to Genesis chapter 25 and verse 7, we sort of reach like a sigh, a sigh in Genesis. This is where the whole story has been bending. The whole story that Moses has been telling has been geared around and built around and bending toward Abraham. And here, Abraham, the hero of the story, and in many ways, the hero of Scripture, because it's through his family that Messiah Jesus comes, who is the greatest hero, capital H-E-R-O of Scripture, he is the one, he will come through this, this man's lineage. He's the covenant man. And so 175 years he dies, verse 8. Then Abraham breathed his last, and he died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried, and Sarah, his wife, who had been buried 48 years before in the very same location. It was the very location that Jacob afterward and Isaac and Rebekah and others would also be buried. Even Joseph, many years later, would be brought back after his bones were brought from Egypt into this very cave, this very place. Verse 11, And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt in Bir Lahairoi. So we've reached a sort of tipping point here, a critical point in the story. And as Moses has told the story, it becomes hugely important for us because what we're going to see here is that the way that he sort of introduced the story, these, these twin disconnections, the vertical disconnection, what we might call the problem of Genesis 3, which is humanity's basic cutting off or severance from God, and then this horizontal disconnection, which took place at the Tower of Babel and has become really the world that we all live in, where we are separated from one another, whether it's linguistically or geographically or religiously, the various and sundry ways that we divide the world up. Just this week, I got my hair cut by somebody from Serbia, and I mentioned to them that I had been to Serbia. And we got into a long conversation about what Serbia is like and what it's like to be in Serbia. And uh, I told him, you know, I remember when I was growing up, it was Yugoslavia. Now it's like five countries. And we had this long conversation about why the, the, the Croats are this way and the Serbs are this way and, and all of the division and the other divisions as well. And he said, there, there, he said there will probably be even further division. 
Further division. Can you imagine? One country divides into five and we're just getting started. Someone once quipped that the history of Europe is a history of people who have two things. Number one, a basic misunderstanding about their own history. And number two, a dislike for their neighbors. That's the history of Europe. So fragmentation followed by fragment. Oh, there's a European right there smiling. Fragmentation followed by fragment. Followed by fragmentation, 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 fragmentation. Australia has been somewhat exempted from this because you live on this great big giant island continent um, that is not easily divisible into other places because you basically live in the only habitable places on this giant continent, namely the coast, right? So you've been spared this sort of fragmentation. But there are other kinds of fragmentation that take place even here. And this is the picture that Genesis paints. People cut off from one another, cut off from God, fragmented. This is the world that's presented to us. And so I spent the week thinking about the families that we have met so far. Right? On our journey, Genesis 25. And I said, you know what? I want to go through and I want to highlight not their good points. I don't want to airbrush this. I want to, I, how has Moses showed us these people? How has he portrayed these families? And uh, the first family that we met, of course, was Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's relationship in no small degree and the, the sort of footprint that they leave on Scripture involves, but it's not limited to, at least these things. Distrust of God disobedience and rebellion. Now, I purposely put down both of those words because in Eve's case, it was disobedience because she was tricked. But in Adam's case, he knew good and well what he was getting into, and that's a little different. That's just outright rebellion. We're also presented uh, Adam and Eve as hiding from God, and then when confronted with the reality of their rebellion and disobedience, blaming one another and ultimately God for their choices. The whole thing there in Genesis chapter 3 boils down to basically a great big excuse-making party. And this then bleeds over into Genesis 4 and 5 in which we find that, that the very first son, Cain, of Adam and Eve murdered the second son, Abel. So this is like the family. Not the most rosy. You know, you can, I can identify with this. I can identify with distrust. I can identify with disobedience. I can identify with rebellion. I can identify with hiding and blaming and excuse making. Have not yet been able to identify with that last one, but I certainly have been sufficiently angry with other people that I wished that they would just go away. Can anybody else here identify with this? Okay, so there's similarity. Let's look at the next family that we've encountered. We then encountered Noah's family. We don't know a lot about Noah. We spend a few chapters talking about Noah there, 6, 7, and 8, or a little bit of 9 as well. Um, but here's what we do know about Noah that's not particularly flattering. We know that Noah became drunk, and the Bible is very chaste at the end of Genesis chapter 9. I invite you to go back and read those, what can only be described as weird verses, where Noah has become drunk, and in his drunkenness, Scripture says that he was naked in his tent. And then it says that Ham, that's one of the sons of Noah, saw the nakedness of Noah. He then, after he saw the nakedness of Noah, went out and told his brothers um, and said, Hey, I saw the, whatever he said to them. And then it says that the brothers took, took pity on their father and they, they 
put a sheet or a blanket of some sort between them, walked backward, and then covered their father so that they wouldn't see what Ham had seen. Now, the Bible, that's it. And we think today, well, what's, the, what's going on there? Well, Bible commentators are disagreed. I actually read a commentary just this morning, um, one of the, really the definitive commentary on biblical sexuality called Flame of Yahweh by Dr. Richard Davidson and read what he has to say about this Genesis 9 experience. What happened there? And he says, well, nobody quite knows what happened, but, but clearly the text is communicating that some kind of sexual indiscretion took place. It wasn't just like a glance at a, at a naked figure of a man. Something happened there and it was ugly. And Moses purposely doesn't paint the whole picture. He's, he's, as it were, sort of protecting the dignity and the masculinity of Noah. Sexual indiscretion. And when he wakes up, realizes what's happened, Noah, in a moment of what can only probably be described as anger or frustration, curses not Ham, but Ham's son, Canaan. So, I don't know about you, but there are families here in this very church that wrestle with some of these same things, addictions and, and drunkenness and, and choices to put things into our bodies that we probably shouldn't. I can't relate exactly to that, but I can relate to being drunk with other kinds of things, entertainments and, and things that really are not in the best interest, not to put so much in my body, but in my brain. I can relate to that. There are certainly people here in this room that can relate to various and sundry sexual indiscretions, right? Whether you're single or married, we can relate to that. And there are people in this room that can relate to being angry and being frustrated at choices that others have made that have reflected negatively on you and maybe even overreacted. Can you relate to any of these things? Here's an interesting thing as a little parenthetical statement. Look at what Moses is doing. This is brilliant. As Moses is telling the story of the flood, he is also telling the story of creation. I'm giving you just a few because I didn't want to have a really busy slide, but just check this out. The story that was told in creation is a story that Moses is retelling in recreation and in the flood experience and in the post-flood experience. For example, in creation, water covered the earth, and in the flood, water covered the earth. In the creation account, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in the flood account, a dove, a symbol of the Spirit, hovered over the water to bring the olive leaf back. Actually, the dove eventually didn't return. In the story of creation, dry land and vegetation emerges. And so too in the story of the flood, dry land and vegetation emerges. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, transitioning into Genesis, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, transitioning into Genesis 2, it says God saw that everything that he had made, and he was really happy with what he saw. He was pleased. When, when Noah comes out of the ark, he offers a sacrifice to God, and it says that the Lord smelt the sacrifice, and it was pleasing to him, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. So there's this pleasure element. God takes pleasure in what he sees. Adam is made from the earth. In Genesis, I think it's chapter 9, verse 20, says that Noah began to be, your Bible probably says, a farmer or a husbandman. It literally means a man of the earth. He was an earth man. And just as Adam partook of fruit and then fell, the forbidden fruit, Noah is presented to us as partaking illegitimately of the fruit of the vineyard, namely wine. And here's an interesting thing. After Adam partakes of that fruit and Eve as well, it leads to a shameful nakedness. 
The very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 says that the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. But then Genesis 3, after the partaking of the forbidden fruit, after the rebellion, after the disobedience, their immediate knee-jerk instinct is to try and cover themselves because there's shame and there's fear. Well, in a similar way, as we've just discussed, the story of, of Noah ends with this shameful nakedness that Moses protects and is discreet about. And so what you have here is this really remarkable sort of telling and retelling. It's as if God is giving the earth a second chance. He's saying, hey, let's try that again. Let's try that again. Let's try that again. In fact, this becomes a theme in Genesis. Time doesn't allow here to go into all of the instances of this, but we do have a very quick one that I'll bring to your attention, and another one we'll talk about next week in the following. The first one that I can just mention here briefly is when Abraham traveled into Egypt shortly after the call of God. He lied to Pharaoh about the price precise relationship of the precise nature of the relationship that he had with Sarah right she's my sister right and then several chapters later that's Genesis chapter 13 in Genesis chapter 20 he does the same thing again but this time he doesn't lie to Pharaoh he lies to a king named Abimelech you see there's this really interesting thing that God is doing in Genesis where he brings people and then he brings them around again and then he gives them another opportunity this becomes a theme not just in Genesis but in all of scripture God giving a chance, saying, oh, let's try that again. God gives another chance. Let's try that again. I don't know how you are, but I can relate to the need for a second chance. Can anybody else here relate to that need? Do you remember when Peter was feeling particularly pious and he went to Jesus and he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sinned against me? I would forgive up to seven times. There was a traditional rabbinical saying in the day that a pious man would forgive up to three times. And Peter was feeling really magnanimous. And he said, man, I will forgive not just three, but three times two plus one. Seven times to which Jesus responds and says, let me tell you something. You want to forgive until 70 times seven. If your brother, he said, would sin against you 70 times seven, 490 times in a day and still come back and ask for forgiveness, he said, that's what we're talking about here. And of course, Jesus isn't saying literally 490 times. It was a reference to the great prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. But check this out. This is a reference to the whole idea of Jubilee. There were Sabbaths that took place every seventh year. And then every seventh Sabbath, the 50th year was the Jubilee year. And if you take a seven and a seven, that's a Jubilee. And then you add a 10, that's like a Jubilee on steroids. What Jesus says is, if you want to have my heart, you got to forgive. you got to give people lots and 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 lots of chances. This isn't just a theological point that's being made. Moses is writing the book of Genesis so that it will sink into your brain. Hey, look, God tries it, and then he tries it again, and then he tries it again, and then he tries it again. Am I the only person here today that's thankful that we serve a God that gives second third, fourth, and thousandth chances. Can you say amen? Come on, church. How about Abraham and Sarah? Well, as we've already mentioned, they lied twice about their marriage, the precise nature of their relationship, saying that Sarah was just his sister when in fact he was her wife. Both Abraham and Sarah disbelieved the promise of God that he would give a son through Sarah, and that led to them trying to do by ingenuity, that's the last one there, tactic instead of trust, which leads to Hagar, which leads to Ishmael, which leads to the whole thing of circumcision, which becomes a mess. Now, I can relate to this. Can anybody else in this room relate to, if not outright lying, 
at least fudging the truth in such a way that you come off looking. There's still an element of truth in what you're saying, but you know good and well that you're fudging. Can anybody else relate to that? Only the pastor. (laughs) Only the... No, 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 of course you can. There's not a day that goes by that you don't either fudge or be tempted to fudge ever so slightly to, to accomplish whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. I can relate to that. Anybody else in here ever struggle with believing the promises of God? Just, just resting and believing in the promise of God? I can relate to that. I can relate to disobedience that leads to long-term consequences like circumcision. I can relate to trying to do for God what God said he would do for me. I can relate to trying to create by pastoral ingenuity and by reading lots of important books. I I can relate to just, I'm going to throw my heart and soul into this and and I'm going to make it happen. I can relate to Sarah. I can relate to the idea, hey, I got an idea, let's try this, rather than just resting and believing and trusting. Can you relate to that? Woo! How about Lot's family? I wasn't here for the sermon on Lot. That was preached by Sam. So Sam, you tell me if you got these points, if you brought these out. We're introduced to Lot. First of all, when Abraham lays the land out before Lot, he says, hey, what do you want? The right or the left? If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And Lot, though he was the younger and though he was basically a, a, a hanger-on with Abraham's journey with God, he selfishly takes the best land from his elder. Can you relate to making decisions in your life and in your family that put you in the best position and put others in a less advantageous position? Can you relate to that? My sons can. All the time I say to them, Landon, why did you do that? He says, well, because Jabel did it first. And I said, well, if he did it first, did you like it? No, I hated it when he did it. Then why would you do to him what he did to you that you didn't like? Because here in a sibling little, you know, cute teenage rivalry sense is the, the embryo of something that we all can relate to, that at some level we want to place ourselves in a slightly more advantageous position. That's Lot, and I can relate to it. Lot, rather than leading where God had hoped that he would go, led his family to the city and ultimately to worldliness, and that's the story of Sodom. In those cryptic, terrible words that Lot pitched his tents towards Sodom. I can relate to making decisions that endanger the welfare of my family. I can relate to making decisions that are not perfectly in harmony with the will of God and thus potentially endangering my family's welfare. I can relate to that. Lot, man, this is a weird one, strangely offers his daughters to the mob when the angels come and and the Sodom mob is clamoring for their... their, uh, flesh, and he says, no, 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 take my daughters. This is weird. I don't know what to do with that story. I don't know if Paul tackled that. It's just a great big weirdness. I, I suppose he thought he was being generous and magnanimous. It strikes me as hugely strange. And ultimately, Lot's hesitating example doomed his wife. I mean, story after story. How about Isaac and Rebecca? This is, basically gets us up to where we're at right now. How about Isaac and Rebecca? Anything here we can relate to? Well, first of all, the the first thing that we're introduced to about Isaac and Rebekah is that they have a gross favoritism problem in their family. Isaac really loves Esau, and Rebekah really loves uh, uh, um, Jacob. Now, this is a major problem. This creates a massive sibling rivalry, which is the backdrop against which the next chapters of Scripture are set. Basically, Genesis 26, 27, 28, all the way up to 32, where Jacob wrestles with the angel, you have the, the outgrowth of just a lot of really bad decisions, just poor decisions, just, just not thinking clearly. 
including but not limited to Jacob using tactic instead of trust in God. When his brother comes in, he's hungry, he's famished, and he says, hey, can I have, Esau says, hey, can I have some of that pottage that you've prepared? And Jacob is like, yes. He's been scheming, he's been hoping some way by artifice or by tactic that he could secure the thing that he longed for, and that was the birthright that he knew Esau didn't particularly want anyway because the birthright came with responsibilities. We're going to talk about that next week. And so he tricks him into, he takes him at his most vulnerable, and he secures again what's in his own best interest. I can relate to that. Can you relate to that? Pressing your advantage in a situation, whether it's an argument with your wife or an argument with your husband, or maybe an argument with somebody in the office and you know that you've got the one up and you can just press your advantage, you know that you're in a position of strength and you leverage that strength to, to put somebody who's already in a vulnerable situation still more vulnerable to, make your, to, to benefit yourself. I can relate to that. Can you relate to that? Now the Bible's starting to look a lot more real. It's not just great stories of walking on water and raising the dead and people, you know, doing all the right things in all the right circumstances at all the right times. Man, this is feeling a little bit more like home. I can relate to Rebecca, deception and distrust. We're going to talk about that next week when she persuades Jacob to go in and to trick Isaac into receiving the blessing of the patriarch. And we're going to see this next week. There's just this whole terrible, what appears to be, as you read the biblical narrative, what can only be described as a climate of terrible communication and trust at some level between Isaac and Rebecca. And it's, it's birthed out of this, this tragic favoritism that each of them shows toward their respective sons. I guess at the end of the day, we can be really confident that these people were what? that these people were humans. Just like you and just like me, these people were humans. The basic story of Scripture, and this is what I've written here, is that God's faithfulness is greater than His creation's faithlessness. It's basically impossible to read the book of Genesis up to chapter 25 and be like, man, I'll never be like those guys. They were so great. They were so amazing. They were so pious. They were so faithful. They were so holy. They were so sanctified. That, no, 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 no. These people were human beings. They made a lot of really bad decisions. Now, don't get me wrong. They made some good decisions, too. They made some great decisions. And the greatest of the decisions that they made was that at the end of the day, most of the people that we've talked about here chose to believe and trust God. They believed that God's faithfulness would outweigh their own unfaithfulness. And I have a question for you today. How is it with your family? How is it with your family? I love this church. This is one of the friendliest, happiest, most upbeat, socially energetic churches I've ever met. Man, there's some, there are some just amazing people in this church. In fact, I think the church is filled with amazing people. I've not met a dud yet. I just, I love it. Love this church. Love the energy. Love the enthusiasm. Love the social connectivity. But I'll tell you, there are some broken families here too. I saw a magnet recently on a, frig- a refrigerator that said, the normal people are the ones you don't know very well. See, see, some of the families that I've gotten to be close to, I'm like, man, there's a brokenness in this family. And then I look at other families and I think, well, maybe they're not broken, but maybe I just don't know them well. This last Thursday, we had a growth group in my house, nine weeks to peace, and there were some tears shed there. There's a lot of tears shed there this week. It was a big week. Summer and I had a plan this week. We, had, we were going to do some stuff, but then the, it sort of got away from us and people just decided they were going to take over the meeting in the best possible way. Holy Spirit came down and this really crazy thing happened. People just started being like really 
really honest. And it was like, whoa, blah, blah, blah. You know, this, this is not church as usual. This is like a whole different thing. Am I right, Summer? Am I telling the truth? This is like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on in that room when people just start opening up. They start being honest. They start being real. They start being vulnerable. That's church. Now, this is church, too. We sing, shine, Jesus, shine. Yeah, woo! That's church. Nothing wrong with that. I love that. That's church. But I'll tell you what else is church. Church is sitting down with a group of people who are just like these people in the book of Genesis and saying, you know what, man, I got... I had a rough week. I struggle with suicidal thoughts. I yelled at my kids so bad this last week that, that if people would have seen me, they would have thought I was a crazy human being. This, this is going on. See? It doesn't go on when we just pretend that all is great and we try to live these veneers or these portraits of religiosity that we think is what's depicted in the Bible. But the Bible gives us full permission to be human, to trust, and to believe in God's faithfulness. And a really cool thing starts happening when people start opening up, start being honest and real and vulnerable and transparent. You know, a really amazing thing starts happening. Community starts happening. Connectivity starts happening. And, and opportunities for the grace of God and for prayer and a sense, hey, there's people in my church that are hurting. It's not just happy Sabbath. God bless you. See you seven days from now. There's like a bigger thing that's going on here. There's people that are hurting. And, and one of the things that we brought out on our Thursday night lesson was that, hey, everybody in the church is struggling, but we don't all struggle at the same time. So right now you might be feeling, ah, none of this describes me because you're on a high right now. But how was it six months ago or how will it be six months from now? You see, when I'm high, you might be low. And when I'm low, you might be high. You see, there's this beautiful text in the book of Ecclesiastes that says that two is better than one and a threefold cord cannot be easily broken. That's you and me and God. So if I'm in a moment of strength right now, and things are going great in my experience and the family's good and the finances are good and the health is good and everything's good. Hey, this is an opportunity for me to become acutely aware of people in my midst that maybe aren't going through such an easy, nice, idyllic situation and I can reach out to them. This does take a little energy though to actually ask questions and to say, how are you doing? How are you really, how, really, how are you? Can we pray together? I tell you, just this week, Jared and I, we got back the results from the NCD thing, and I'll talk to the elders more about this later, but the NCD, which is called the Natural Church Development, I'm not going to go into the whole history of this, but I'm going to tell you that one thing that we got back is that this church, based on the surveys that we ourselves have filled out, are not a very good praying church. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people in our church that pray. Yeah, there certainly are. There's great prayers in this church. But in, in question after question, in various ways and in sundry ways, as these questions would come up, there seems to be a, a weakness in our midst when it comes to feeling that it's just okay to pray for somebody. And I said that to the, to, the, to the team this last week when we met for the worship committee. I said, one of the things that I'd love to see happen here is that we start creating a culture where we just say, somebody's talking, somebody's opening up, say, hey, can I pray with you? Like right now, not like, oh, I'll pray for you, brother, catch you, peace out, and then you forget about it because you're going to get gelato. No, like actual prayer, like, hey, can I pray with you right now? It doesn't have to be 30 minutes long. 
right? It can just be a short prayer, a brief prayer, but an open prayer, an honest prayer. And if we create a culture of openness and a culture of transparency and a culture of prayer, the Spirit will be able to do some really great things in this church. Do you believe that? All right, I want to conclude by talking about mothers. I'm going to wrap this up because I'm going to talk about mothers a lot next week. I tweeted this probably two months ago. What is it that keeps families together? Well, frankly, it's moms more than dads. Okay, I'll be straight up with you on that. And this is what I tweeted. I don't know if you can read that, but I wanted to put it up here. It says, if mothers were unfaithful and absent at the same rate as fathers, whole societies the world over would have utterly collapsed long ago. Now, you tell me that's not true. In person after person, sports star after sports star, you'll just hear them say, you hear, I mean, we've heard this so many times that we've just become accustomed to it. Oh, my dad, I never knew my dad. I was raised by my mom. My dad left when I was fill in the blank. I can relate to this story. I had an absentee dad. And it wasn't until a wonderful man by the name of Richard Asherick, whose last name I took by my own choice at the age of almost 14, he came into my life and I said, yeah, that's, I'll, I'll be that guy's son. But prior to that, where was dad? Right? I didn't have a father. I had a sperm donor. And if I said, how many, of us in this, how many of us in this church can relate to a father who is either absent physically or absent emotionally, there's going to be a lot of hands that are going to go up. But here's the remarkable thing. When dads disappear, not always, but often, it's the mom who bears it up. It's the mom who carries the family. If we heard stories again and again about absentee mothers like we do about absentee fathers, man, the world wouldn't even be able to exist. Without the connectivity and the courage of a mom, of a mother, families would completely disappear into oblivion. That doesn't mean that there can't be an absentee mother. It can happen, but it's much rarer. I was thinking this week about moms and thinking about this sermon and, and what is the thing that binds moms to their children and binds families together through the mom. And, and when you think about it, there's this remarkable connectivity that God has built into mothers. For example, males bodily are not built for relationship. When God took Adam and he put him in the garden, he put Adam in the garden and he said, take care of the garden, do stuff. And that's built into the DNA of men even to this day. Most men, if you get them together in a room, it'll be just a very short time before they'll say, you know, what do you do? How was your week at work? How long have you worked there? We'll talk about dude stuff, doing stuff, worky stuff. Women are different. Not all of them, but many of them are different. You get, a lot, you get women in a room, they say, so are you married? Do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? How many? How long have you been married? It's relationship stuff. It's very interesting. God put, God put Adam into the garden and he said, do stuff. And God put Eve into the garden and he said, take care of him. So today, it's right into our DNA that men are doers of stuff. It doesn't mean that women don't do, but men think they, they get their basic sense of, of accomplishment or success or personhood and identity from what they have done or not done. A man will feel like a failure, not usually relationally, but if, he, if he's a failure financially or a failure in his work or a failure, that's deflating to a man. Or a woman... And it doesn't mean that it couldn't, there couldn't be exceptions to the rule. She will, she will think in terms of relationship, in terms of connectivity. And you look at a woman's body. Her body is designed for connectivity. She has a uterus that a man doesn't have. That's where a little baby goes. That's where there's a connection. Right? She has, she has breasts that lactate from which she feeds a child and nourishes a child. So even her whole physiology as well as her psychology and her spirituality is just wrapped up with connection and connectivity doesn't mean that men can't be connected, 
But a woman is wired for connection. A man is wired for doing stuff. Right? And when we come together, this, this complementary thing creates a beautiful picture of who God is. God could have created males. He could have created an asexual, androgynous, unisex race of beings in his image. But no, he created this complementarity between the male figure and what the male represents and the female figure and what she represents. And there's this really great thing that happens with moms. I was reading just this week about, about moms and I, I went through some of my favorite statements from moms. I'm going to r- land on this one. Ellen White The day of God will reveal how much the world owes to godly mothers. Can the church say amen to that? Godly mothers. Look at this one. When the judgment will sit and the books will be opened, when that well done, good and faithful servant of the great judge is pronounced, the crown of immortal glory is placed on on the brow of the victor, many will raise their crowns in the sight of the assembled universe and they will point to their mom. Look at this language. This is big language. This is judgment language. On that final day, when the conflict is over, when death and disease are no more, when it's all behind us, she says that many will point to their mom and say, she made me all I am through the grace of God. Her instruction, her prayers have been blessed to my eternal salvation. And I, w- I want to just open my heart to you here, moms and fathers as well, but especially moms. Look, you might feel like that. I'm not a godly mom. I'm not this amazing mom. I'm not like a super mom. But, but was Sarah? But was Rebecca? Was Leah or Rachel? Was Eve? Oh, these are human beings like you, who at the end of the day, they said, despite my failures, despite my unfaithfulness, I'm going to trust to the fa- faithfulness of God. Last one here. I love this. Mothers exercise a power more decisive than the minister in the desk or the king upon his throne. More than the preacher and more than the king is this amazing thing that a mother does. And today we celebrate mothers and it lines up perfectly for our study through the Old Testament because we're taking stock of what took place in Genesis and we see a bunch of really ordinary people. People like you, people like me. Not super moms, not super dads, just ordinary people. People that are fumbling, how did Ellen White say? Follies and and foolishness and faults. Fumbling through life. And yet, at the end of the day, they say, I'm going to put my confidence in God. I'm going to put my confidence in His faithfulness. I'm going to put my confidence in His Son. And if you do that, moms, and you do that, dads, and you do that, husbands, and you do that, wives, and you do that, children, if you say, I'm going to put my confidence, my confidence is going to be in God's faithfulness and goodness. Really beautiful and special things will happen in your home and in this church. I'm kind of setting you up here. Because next week is going to be kind of a big, heavy, important sermon for families. And if you're thinking, you know, I might want to go to the beach. Next week might be a good one. 
But if you're thinking, you know what, I really need to hear what the text of Scripture says to my family, to my modern situation. I, I might need to hear not only words of encouragement, but words of admonishment, and even words of chastening, and words of, of rebuke. That'll be next Sabbath. I want you to raise your hand with me if you say, Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust in your faithfulness and not... I'm going to trust in your faithfulness. Let's just start there. Anybody want to say that? Lord, I'm going to trust in your faithfulness. Amen. And here's the second part of that. Lord, thank you for raising... Bailey, was that a raising your hand or a yawn? Okay, good. Second one here. How many people need to say, Lord, I need to be delivered from fixating on my own unfaithfulness? It's not just trusting him, but it's, it's like... I, I, it's not just... Yeah, you did fail, but so did Abraham. And you did fail, and so did Sarah. And you did fail, and so did Adam. And you did fail, and so did Eve. And you did fail, and so did Isaac. And you did fail, and so did Rebecca. And you did fail, and so did Jacob. And you did fail, and so did Esau. And you did fail... You see, it's not just about trusting that God will be faithful. It's about not fixating on your own unfaithfulness, your own failures, your own follies, your own shortcomings, your own mistakes. It's believing that God will make something out of nothing, that he will make something beautiful where we have made only mistakes. Father in heaven, you've seen our raised hands. Today's been a day where we've talked about families broken and Families that were in need of grace every bit as much as we're in need of grace. And Father, today we have tried to see the basic similarity between us and those in Scripture. Not a difference, not a distinction, but a similarity, us and them. And Father, today is a day for mothers, a day that we think about mothers, especially on the eve of Mother's Day tomorrow. And and today in the context of this church, Father, I want to pray. David already prayed and Rob already prayed, but I want to add my prayer that you will give us godly mothers in this church. Mothers that bind their families together in ways that only a woman can. That you will give them patience. That you will give them wisdom. Tact. That you will help them to, if need be, navigate the difficulties and vicissitudes of life, whether it's relational or or children that are making bad choices or financial or health. Father, give us great mothers in this church. You've already done so, and I pray that today would be a day that you would strengthen the mothers of this church, this faith community. If there's one that's tempted to be discouraged and looking back and thinking, oh, I made so many mistakes. Father, today may they feel the balm of Gilead upon their souls. And Father, if there's that mother in here today who just has a young ones or young one, just just give her wisdom and skill as she navigates this complex, difficult, hostile world. Father, help the mothers here, especially if they're married, to buoy up their partners, to to buoy up their their husbands and to just be great partners, great, great team players. Father, if there is hostility in marriages here. I pray you would heal that hostility. If there is hostility here between parents and children, I pray you would begin to heal that hostility. If there is antagonism from children to parents, I pray you would heal that. Father, bring our church, not just to a building on Saturday morning, but bring our church to your throne of grace, to a place of healing, to a place of mercy.
to a place of restoration where our families can be the things that you've created them to be. Where mothers can be the mothers that you've called and created them to be. They can be great wives and daughters as well. And Father, that the men of the church would be men. Great husbands. Godly husbands. Good dads. Father, bring wholeness and healing and happiness and restoration to these families that are represented here. Not just those that are sitting here, but those that are represented. We love you, Father. You've been with us this morning. You have ministered to us in many ways. And today we go out of here, trusting and leaning and relying totally and completely on your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.